Welcome to the show, everybody. I believe we have ourselves a big day today. I believe today is a little thing called the Iowa caucus. Um, don't want to sound melodramatic or anything, but our futures rest on today. <laughs> I wish that was an exaggeration, but I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, what happens today very well might, you know, very well might be an indication of what it's going to be like in this country come 2020, the the general election. Um, look out, man. I'm telling you, bro, look out. Look out, look out, look out. So <clears throat> everything on paper for Bernie right now, I can't lie to you guys, man. Everything on paper looks phenomenal. Everything on paper looks amazing. Almost as good as it could look. Now, I say almost because in New Hampshire, Bernie Sanders literally has a 15-point lead. He's doubled his closest competitor. So New Hampshire, um, t- uh, Bernie is straight Tiger Woodsing or Michael Jordaning the field. Um, in Iowa, he's not, he's not doing that, but he is up. He is up. I don't know what the average is, maybe four or five points up. Uh, There were some recent polls that had him up seven. Um, So it's not a foregone conclusion, but he's looking good. I'm not going to make a prediction because I don't want to jinx it, and I just feel weird. I just feel weird. But um, I hope everybody's getting out there. If you're in Iowa, get out there and do everything you can do to try to get Bernie elected. Go caucus for the man. Go caucus for the man. Um, If I was there, you know damn well what I'd be doing. So anyway, all right, let's, um, I got a lot of stuff to get to today. I know it's the Iowa caucus day, but I got a full show. All right, here we go. Let's start. The DNC fuckery has officially begun for the 2020 election. Look at this here. Mike Bloomberg gave the DNC $300,000 two days before he entered the 2020 race. And now the DNC is changing its rules in a way very favorable to Mike Bloomberg. Guys, they're not even hiding it. They're not even giving us the respect of saying, you know, let's be clever about this. They're not doing that. So I'll give you some more specifics here. Mike Bloomberg donated $300,000 to the DNC. And what he did is that's the, to be, to be specific, I think it's actually $106,000 three separate times he donated to three separate branches of the DNC. So it's the legal maximum. It's the legal maximum. Um, There's one fund, which is for lawsuits. He gave $106,000 there. There's one fund for something else, $106,000 there. Basically, the the simple way of thinking about it is there's three branches to the DNC. The DNC has three branches. The RNC has three branches. He went in there and said, I'm just going to give the most I possibly can. And so it's about $300,000 spread out over three different branches. If you think that this is just like, you know, him doing it out of the kindness of his heart, I have a bridge to sell you. 
I mean that. I don't know if anybody's that naive to think that that's actually what happened here. Uh, he also made an $800,000 donation that same day to the Democratic Grassroots Victory Fund, which is a joint fundraising pack between the DNC and state Democratic parties. So, I mean, really what he did is over a million-dollar donation to the Democratic Party on the same day. And now what the DNC did to help him is they said, hey, I know that for our debate rules, in order to qualify, you had to have, I believe the number was over 225,000 individual donors. And the rule behind, and the idea behind that is, well, that shows that you actually have grassroots enthusiasm. So it's not just about, you know, can you, is it big money fundraising? Can you get a lot of corporate PACs to back you or billionaires? No. It's like, okay, but how about the people? Do the people like you enough that, you know, Dave and Jeff and, and Barbara and whoever, Karen, decided, you know, I'm going to donate five bucks to him, I'm going to donate 20 bucks to him, whatever it might be. They got rid of that rule. Now there's no individual donor rule. And the reason behind it is Mike Bloomberg has, like, very few individual donors. But what he's done is he's carpet-bombed the airwaves with ads, with Mike Bloomberg ads. And he's bought himself anywhere from 6% in the polls to 8% in the polls nationally, which is insane. Insane. So you talk about, you know, Bernie or Biden, they have anywhere from 25% to 30% support in the country. The fact that Bloomberg has basically bought up to 8% by carpet bombing the airwaves with ads. So he's basically got a third of the way towards... Biden and, and Bernie simply by having a tremendous amount of money and doing something that all the other candidates aren't doing because they don't necessarily have the funds to or they need to spend their resources in other ways. He has unlimited resources. So basically what we're seeing here is a case study in oligarchy. The case study is, okay, if a billionaire jumps in and carpet bombs the airwaves, um, how far can they really get? And right now, the fact that Bloomberg has leapfrogged candidates who've been in it for so long, I mean, that really is something that should scare you. It really is. Um, it shows how broken the system is, and it 100% should not be allowed what he's doing. But the fact that the DNC is now working with him, and make, make no mistake about it, the idea of the DNC doing this is, oh, my God, we need to try anything to stop Bernie. It definitely comes down to that. They are well aware of, you know, Joe Biden's rough shape. They're well aware that outside of Biden, you know, you have Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete, who are their next favorites, and they're pretty far back. So they want an insurance plan, and this would be an insurance plan. If they get him on the stage, I mean, they would definitely want Bloomberg over uh, Bernie, and that says something because he's a former Republican as of very recently. He endorsed George W. Bush in 2004. 2004. He's most known for stop and frisk as mayor of New York City and blocking a minimum wage increase as mayor of New York City. This is the guy you would prefer over somebody who's been fighting for left ideas all along? And the answer is yes, because the DNC is corporatist. 
They're pro-establishment. They're not real leftists. They're not, you know, social Democrats like Bernie is. They'd much rather have this guy, so they're tweaking the rules. The crazy thing is, um, Mike Ravel, he was talking to the DNC because I don't remember all the specifics of it. I want to say, like, he hit the individual donor threshold or the polling threshold, and they were requesting to them, hey, you know, you've made the you've made it too stringent. You've made the rules too stringent. Can you please, like, relax them a little bit so Gravel could get on stage? It was either Gravel or the teams that were running his campaign that were doing this phone call with the DNC. And the DNC responded, and they have it. They recorded it. The DNC responded, listen, we didn't change the rules for Governor Steve Bullock. We just can't change the rules. We've decided to be fully open and transparent this time around. And so there's no, not even the option of changing the rules. They are what they are, and that's the end of the conversation. And then Mike Bloomberg comes along, donates over a million dollars to various branches of the DNC, 300000 to the, you know, the national DNC, and they immediately scrap the individual donor threshold to try to get him on stage. They couldn't, if they tried, make the DNC look like more of a parody. I mean, everybody knows the view of the DNC that's prevalent is, oh, they're just like a beyond hope, corrupt, corporatist institution, and they're useless. And all they do is get in the way of their own voters, and they block change. And then they come along, and they couldn't prove it anymore if they tried. They are like a comic book villain. And then Tom Perez had the nerve to go out there and say, um, you know, in, in relation to a different story, like, no, we would never change the rules. And everybody was like, bro, you literally just did for Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? They have this weird, like, holier-than-thou smug attitude, and they act like any criticism of them is illegitimate. But at the same time, they're not even hiding the worst aspects of what they're doing. Is this what you want the Democratic Party to be known as? The, the sellout to billionaires organization? Because that's what you're doing here. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And the fact of the matter is, they cannot raise money through small dollar donations because the small dollar donors are going to Bernie, and everybody knows that the DNC screwed Bernie last time. So, you know, if you wanted to be in a better financial situation, perhaps don't screw over a wildly popular candidate who's in your own party. They have nobody to blame but themselves. You know, it reminds me of Hillary getting mad at Bernie because of how the primary went. It's like, well, you should be mad at yourself for doing the things that he was accurately criticizing you for. It's the same thing for the DNC. You know, you can't raise small-dollar donations. Gee, I wonder why. Maybe stop doing the things that make small-dollar donors hate you. Maybe that. Maybe that. But here we are. A billionaire donates $300,000 to the DNC, $800,000 to the Democratic Grassroots Victory Fund. Grassroots. Hilarious that that's in there. So ironic. And now he has uh, bought his way on the debate stage. Hopefully everybody can see through this gross corruption and this disgusting attempt to take down Bernie. Because that's all this is. This is a Hail Mary pass, hoping they could stave off a Bernie Sanders nomination. But I got news for you. These people are helping Trump. They're helping Trump. Any effort from the DNC to screw over Bernie Sanders 
helps Trump by definition, because in my estimation, all the other candidates are much weaker versus Trump. If you run Bloomberg versus Trump, that's like a 70% chance that Donald Trump wins. If you run Bernie versus Trump, Bernie's the favorite. Biden versus Trump, again, I put, you know, I put uh, Trump at like 65% to beat Biden. So they would rather roll the dice on a Trump second term than allow the will of the voters to be upheld and allow Bernie Sanders to win this thing. So just keep that in mind, man. They're not your friend. And it's not my fault for pointing that out. It's their, their fault for taking these actions, accepting that money, changing the debate rules. Because I could already foresee the, the centrist neoliberal you know, unity screamers, because that's what they'll do. They'll try to chastise me and berate me. Yeah, you don't believe in unity. What about your unity? What about that? What about unifying behind the most popular uh, senator in the country, Bernie Sanders? What about unifying behind his agenda, which is overwhelmingly popular, according to every opinion poll? What about that? What about not kneecapping the grassroots enthusiasm? What about not changing the rules to get a billionaire on stage? What about not taking billionaire money? What about that? Don't talk to me about unity. So it is infuriating, and it's disgusting, and hopefully everybody could see through it, and I hope you guys spread the word. Okay, next. I have yet another example of the DNC trying to screw over the will of the people, and yet again, they're not even hiding it. So before, uh, what we just discussed was how Michael Bloomberg gave $300,000 to the national DNC. He gave... $800,000 to the Democratic Grassroots Victory Fund, which is the DNC and the state parties. So over a million-dollar donation to the DNC, boom, they change the debate rules and say, hey, you don't need an individual donation threshold anymore. We're getting rid of that. This is an attempt to get Bloomberg on the debate stage so that they could try to kneecap Bernie. That's what this is. And they're so corporate and corrupt and disgusting, and it's transparent. But this story is perhaps even worse. It's perhaps even worse. DNC insiders plot return of superdelegates to stop Sanders at convention. In conversations on the sidelines of a DNC executive committee meeting and in telephone calls and texts in recent days, about a half dozen members have discussed the possibility of a policy reversal to ensure that so-called superdelegates can vote on the first ballot at the party's national convention. Such a move would increase the influence of DNC members, members of Congress, and other top party officials who now must wait until the second ballot to have their say if the convention is contested. Let me explain something to you. It's bad enough that superdelegates still exist on the second ballot. For them to be openly discussing, hey, this guy might run away with this thing, so what we have to do is get back to having superdelegates on the first ballot so we could steal it from him there. That is beyond brazen. And they have no idea what they're getting themselves into if they do that. I just want everybody to understand something. We will not let that stand. It's not a question. 
It's not up in the air. It's not a maybe. If they decide to steal this election from Bernie Sanders, I'll go further. Let's say Bernie Sanders wins a plurality, but doesn't win a majority. So he has the most votes, but he doesn't have over 50%. And they try to screw him over, even on the second ballot. We're not letting that stand either. We will march on Washington, D.C. We will have, and I'm, this is almost certainly not an exaggeration, millions of people descend on Washington, D.C., or the, the Democratic Convention, wherever. Wherever we have to go, we will go. And we'll make damn sure that the will of the voters is upheld. Because you already screwed him once in 2016. You think you're going to screw him over again in 2020? And you think that has any other outcome other than handing 2020 over to Donald Trump on a silver platter? Let me explain something to you. If you actually believe, and all these centrists say this nonsense, oh my God, the number one thing is beating Trump, the number one thing is beating Trump, the number one thing is beating Trump, the number one thing is beating Trump. How many times have you heard centrists say that? It's endless. It's endless. But if you really believe that, and you're also planning on jacking the election from the person who has the most votes, well, you're his best friend. And again, that's not up in the air. That's not a question. What do you think you're going to do? Get rid of Bernie and put in Klobuchar? Put in Warren? Try to find somebody that you think can placate the left by saying, but it's, it's a woman! It's a woman! What do you do? It's a woman! The woman! So you guys like, like women, right? Right? Is anyone the first female president? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Don't look at the policies, even though they're going to be massively corporate and they're going to do the bidding of the billionaires and they're going to you know, do the bidding of the corporate PACs and the military-industrial complex and Wall Street, look away from that, but it's a woman! What do you think is going to happen? And by the way, I'm, we're already seeing Trump doing it. Trump is going to go around all over this country, and one of his talking points in all of his rallies is going to be, the DNC, they're screwing poor Bernie again, they're screwing Bernie Sanders, it's terrible to see, they got to... You know, let the will of the voters stand. Let crazy Bernie win. I want to take on crazy Bernie. I'll tell you what, we would never treat his supporters as bad as the DNC is treating his supporters. Now, it's not, like, that's not going to lead to some, like, gigantic number of Bernie voters supporting Trump. It's not. But will there be plenty that stay home? Absolutely. And it's not their fault. It doesn't matter how much you browbeat them and try to say, oh, it's you, watch you, shut up and come vote for the person. What? Oh, now you want my vote to count. Now you want it to count. When you just took away the will of my vote, the will of the voters, in the primary, now all of a sudden you want me to show up? Fuck off. Fuck off, bro. Are you kidding me? What a joke this is. Now, Tom Perez has come out and vehemently denied this. But in his denial, he couldn't help but trip over himself. Because he said, this is no, we said before that we're open, we're, we're totally committed to transparency, and we're not changing the rules this time around. And as everybody immediately said in response, they were like, bro, you literally just changed the rules like today in order to help Michael Bloomberg. You decided we're going to drop the individual donor threshold so that Michael Bloomberg could get on stage. He's bought his way to 6% or 8% in the polls now by carpet bombing the airwaves with ads because he's got all the money in the world. He's bought this much support, you know, in classic billionaire fashion, now you're going to get rid of the individual donor threshold. The individual donor threshold is the real, you know, measurement of grassroots support. He doesn't have almost any individual donors. So they're like, okay, we'll get rid of that and try to get him on stage so we could stop Bernie. As they literally just changed the rules, Tom Perez's 
sanctimoniously out there like, this is nonsense. We weren't talking about this. We've never changed the rules. You just did. So you're lying to our face now, and we know you were definitely having these conversations behind the scenes. Now, I don't know who was really, you know, leading the conversations, which delegates uh, were in on it or whatever, but here's what I do know. Guys, as I've said before and many others have said before, Bernie Sanders has to overwin, overwin in this primary in order to just win because they're going to try to pull out all the stops. They're going to try to screw them. They're going to try to do it. We can't afford a victory where it's a small victory. We need to have a crushing victory over all the other candidates. We have to do it. We have to do it because uh, they're openly hostile. They were in 2016. They are now. And um, it, it, it's so gross that in a, what's supposed to be a democracy, like this is how we're treated. This is how the people are treated. But the reality is, guys, we're always going to have to deal with this as long as we're actually threatening power. And we are. It, it's by our very nature. Being on the left, we threaten power. Why? Because if you want to, you know, if you want to go after Wall Street criminals, you're threatening power. You want to go after the military-industrial complex, you're threatening power. You want to go after Big Pharma and the for-profit health insurance companies, you're threatening power. You want Medicare for all? Man, there's a lot of people who make a lot of money off of our broken health care system that literally murders people. You know, you want to um, eliminate student loan debt? Financial institutions are not going to like that now, are they? I mean, listen, we're fighting the most powerful lobbies, lobbyists, uh, industries in this country. That's what we're doing. So this is par for the course, man. It really is. And they're brazenly screwing us, and there's barely a veneer over it. But we know where we stand. We know where we stand, and we're not going to take this lying down. This is, this is an argument that I was trying to put out there even in 2016 is, you know, when the DNC screwed Bernie, the, a lot of people had the reaction of like, well, fuck this, which is understandable, almost like, well, fuck electoral politics. And I was trying so hard to get the message across to people that, no, 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 you got it exactly backwards. Since they're doing what they're doing, that just means we have to get more involved and we have to overwhelm the system. We have to make it so that even their attempts to screw us don't work. That's what I mean by overwinning just to win. So let's make it, let's make life living hell for them. Because honestly, all they do is represent big money interests in this country. That's all they do. And Bernie Sanders is representing the people. And so they're trying to screw them by any means necessary. But what they didn't expect is the people's army being right there to fight back. So we're not going to let this happen. We'll do whatever we have to do to get the will of the voters upheld. So um, they're, they're up to their old tricks again. Don't get it twisted. And the people who are leadership in the DNC, this is like the, the group of people in the country that is most anti-Bernie Sanders. I'm not kidding about that. Run-of-the-mill Republican voters like Bernie Sanders more than Democratic elites like Bernie Sanders. It's totally unfair. It's totally gross. It's not representative. By the way, the DNC is packed. It's a who's who of lobbyists and special interests. Um, but we know that, and we know that they're our enemy, and we're going to overwhelm them. Again, we can't let it happen. 
we can't just sit back and relax as they screw us. So let's get after it, man. Don't listen to the people who tell you to shut up, sit down, know your role, stay in your place. Don't listen to them. Your voice matters just as much as anybody else's. And if we stand unified when the time comes, um, we will win. All right, next. Here we go again with Hillary Clinton. She just cannot help herself. Clinton said, Sanders and supporters did not do enough to unify the party in 2016. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton accused um, Senator Bernie Sanders and his supporters of not doing enough to unify the party behind her, her White House bid in 2016, and said that their behavior affected the general election. Quote, all the way up until the end, a lot of people highly identified with his campaign, were urging people to vote third party, urging people not to vote, she said in an interview on the podcast Your Primary Playlist. It had an impact. Clinton accused Sanders supporters of drawing out the nominating contest by refusing to come around to her presidential campaign all the way through to the 2016 Democratic National Convention. Okay, so there's a lot to say about this, of course. Let's start with the obvious point. You're yelling at Bernie Sanders not doing enough to unify the party in 2016. The DNC rigged the primary against him. Do you have any idea how big of a person you have to be to say, okay, so you stole it, but you know what? You're still the lesser of two evils, and you're not as bad as Trump. Therefore, I'll suck it up, and I'll help you. And Bernie Sanders did nearly 40 rallies for her. Bernie Sanders did way more rallies for Hillary Clinton than Hillary Clinton did for Barack Obama in 2008. Now, a lot of Bernie supporters criticized the hell out of him for even backing Hillary Clinton. But I think Bernie made a genuine calculation that he thought she was the lesser of two evils, so he was going to do his best to try to avoid the worst-case scenario. Um, But the nerve to go out there and say, you didn't do enough to unify the party. Well, what about you when you... We're getting debate questions before the debates. In other words, you were cheating in the debates. What about that? What about that? What about the fact that the DNC was acting as an arm of the Clinton campaign and you guys got veto power on their press releases? This body, which is supposed to be neutral and objective, you guys were controlling. What about that? So what about you not even allowing a fair process and then getting mad And turning around and saying, you didn't do enough to support me after I stole it from you and after I rigged it in in as many ways as I possibly could. And the other thing is, I mean, these guys are amazing because instead of getting mad at Bernie for accurately criticizing you, is there not a single moment of self-reflection where you're like, well, hold on, maybe the problem is that I did the things that he's accurately accusing me of doing, whatever it may be, when Bernie Sanders went after her for accepting the endorsement of Henry Kissinger, who's a war criminal. You know, maybe you shouldn't have accepted that endorsement. Maybe you shouldn't have, you know, uh, had him as a mentor of yours. Have you considered that? 
Maybe you shouldn't have voted for the Iraq War. Maybe you shouldn't have orchestrated the overthrowing of Libya, which now has slave markets and is a failed state. And the list goes on and on. Maybe you shouldn't have supported all the outsourcing deals. Instead of getting mad at Bernie Sanders for accurately criticizing you, maybe you shouldn't have done the things that are being criticized, that you're being criticized for. I mean, that's obvious. But no, it's always, there's no self-reflection. There's no ability for self-reflection. And it's absolutely maddening. Now, the other point is, guys, it was just last week that she launched an attack against him. He's running for president. She's not running for president. And she, what did she say? Well, nobody likes him. Nobody even likes Bernie. So you repeatedly launch attacks against him, the Democratic frontrunner. And then you turn around and you yell about, about unity. Do you not see the contradiction? Do you not see that you just did the thing that you're attacking him for? What do you, how do you not see that? Is it, do none of your actions ever count? And I, honestly, I think that she has that thing in her mind where she's just fundamentally incapable of self-criticism. Apparently, none of her actions count. I get, to, I get to lambast Bernie Sanders on a regular basis, and you have to sit there and take it, and God forbid you respond, then you know, you're the, the only problem here. And then, of course, the final point is, guys, 25% of Hillary supporters, roughly, supported John McCain in 2008. So in other words, they supported Hillary over Obama in the primary. And then in the general, 25% supported McCain. Now, for Bernie Sanders, only 12% of his voters went to Trump. So think about that. Double the number of Hillary Clinton voters didn't believe in party unity. They literally had a group when Obama won the primary, and they said, Puma, party unity, my ass. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's sheer projection. Does she not know those numbers? It's possible she doesn't know those numbers. It's also possible that she knows those numbers and she doesn't care because she's just trying to hit Bernie and hit people on the left. And by the way, the reason why Bernie Sanders was hesitating was simply to get extractions from you for the American people. That's why he waited a little bit. He wanted to have meetings with you and have you. Now, that's where a normal politician in those circumstances would meet with Hillary and say, what am I getting? And they would mean that from a careerist perspective. So Bernie, you know, Bernie could theoretically sit with Hillary and say, what are you going to give me? Can I be secretary of labor? Like, give me something. I need to be in the administration. I need something like that for me. What did Bernie Sanders do? He held out, sat down with Hillary Clinton, and got Hillary Clinton to sign on to his free college bill. So it wasn't about Bernie. It wasn't about his career. It was about how do I help the American people? I need to get extractions for the American people. And she has the nerve to turn around and say, how dare he? He doesn't believe in party unity. He didn't help me in 2016 when he did way more rallies for her than she did for Obama. And to say that he and his people don't believe in unity, only 12% of Bernie, Bernie voters in the primary went to Trump in the general. For you, it was 25% that went to McCain in the general. Every argument she uses is not only wrong, but it's also true of her. It's a true criticism of her and her supporters. So please, spare me all this nonsense. Spare me. Hillary, there's a reason why your approval rating is 36%. And he is the most popular senator in the country. This is literal. Hillary Clinton's approval rating is below Donald Trump's approval rating. Pretty sure that says it all right there.
All right, next. Take a sip of my water, bitch. Ah, much better. All right, let's talk about Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib was involved in a viral story a couple days ago. Um, Here she is weighing in on Hillary Clinton. This is at a live Bernie event. Somebody in the audience boos Hillary Clinton, and then here's her reaction. Week when someone by the name of Hillary Clinton said that nobody, we're not going to boo, we're not going to boo, we're classy here, we're classy. I'll boo, boo. (laughs) You all know I can't be quiet. No, we're going to boo. That's all right. The haters, the haters will shut up on Monday when we win. There we go. I was going to say, a hater. Now, what's so amazing is how out of touch mainstream media is because they were falling all over themselves to defend Hillary Clinton and to play the how dare you good sis card and act like this is this is the most egregious thing that has ever happened ever now I say that's out of touch because guys just like with Mitt Romney in 2012 welcome to loserville you're a loser you're a loser you lost the election. You know, you couldn't do it. You couldn't beat this joke of a human being, this game show host. So you have a 36% approval rating, Hillary. The sentiment you saw in that room, I got news for you. It's not just Bernie supporters who feel like that, who would boo. It's the overwhelming majority of the country that is uninterested in what you're selling. Now, compare that to the media. The media is not at all indicative of the feelings of the American people. They acted like Hillary Clinton is the queen and how dare anybody cross her ever. There wasn't one-tenth this outrage from last week when she said nobody likes Bernie Sanders in mainstream media. So let's understand the rules. Hillary Clinton gets to go out there and take gratuitous shots, asinine shots, at Bernie Sanders and the left until she's blue in the face. But if you respond to that, oh, my God, it's the end of the world, and how dare you? You don't believe in party unity. Why didn't you say she didn't believe in party unity when she was shitting on the front runner last week? Why didn't you say that? Because, again, the media is not not an amalgamation or it's not um, indicative of what the people feel. So, you know, they're elitist in the media. And in the reaction to this Rashida Tlaib moment, they proved it beyond any doubt. So they went off. They acted like what she did was evil. Um, She started feeling bad about what she said, Rashida Tlaib. And so after the media, how dare you served her to death, she said the following, quote, I'm so incredibly in love with the movement that makes our campaign of Not Me, Us has created. This makes me protective over it and frustrated by attempts to dismiss the strength and diversity of our movement. However, I know what is at stake if we don't unify over one candidate to beat Trump, and I intend 
to, I intend to do everything possible to ensure that Trump does not win this election in 2020. In this instance, I allowed my disappointment with Secretary Clinton's latest comments about Senator Sanders and his supporters to get the best of me. You all, my sisters in service on stage, and our movement deserve better. She says, I will continue to strive to come from a place of love and not react in the same way of those who are against what we are building in this country. This is about building a just and equitable future for my two boys, children across the country, and future generations. So, listen, that's very classy. Um, It's not really a full apology. She didn't really apologize. But what it is is a semi-apology. It's like, okay, listen, let me, be, let me be more diplomatic right now, and let me tell you what's really going on in my head. I don't like that she keeps taking shots at us. I should have been a bigger person. That's basically what she's saying. File that under semi-apology, in my opinion. You might read it as a full apology. I know I've seen some people who view it as not even a semi-apology. However you want to interpret it, it is what it is. I think that it's relatively clear what she's trying to do there. So, after Rashida Tlaib released that, Hillary Clinton's spokesperson responded and said the following, quote, I can't imagine this kind of behavior is something Iowans want to see from candidates and their surrogates, and I don't imagine the vast majority of voters in Representative Tlaib's district, which Secretary Clinton won by over 60 points in 2016, want to see this either. They waited until she released her semi-apology, and then they punched her in the face anyway. What did you learn? Okay, listen, this is what I'm trying to tell people. And I've had this fight a thousand times. Believe it or not, this is one of the things where there's the biggest split among actual leftists. Like, there's a real argument that goes on about this. And as a general rule, leftists are people who want to improve the system and and make people's lives better. They're generally kind-hearted people. So the debate that happens is, you know hey, should we really believe in and try to fight for unity or do we like acknowledge that there's a civil war going on and we ruthlessly fight for our own side in that civil war? Now, you guys are going to be unsurprised to learn that my position in this debate has always been you have to acknowledge that there's a civil war going on in order to win it. You can't just wish it away. Well, the dominant strain of thought among actual leftists, especially in electoral politics, is, no, we need to be the bigger people, and we need to fight for unity. So here you have an instance where Rashida Tlaib is trying to be the bigger person and trying to do exactly that, trying to actually fight for unity. And what she came to learn the hard way is, they don't mean it. They don't mean it. They never mean it. Ever. This was an establishment protection racket. When they talk about unity, it's to get the left to fall in line behind centrist, neoliberal, corporatist candidates. That's what it's always meant to them. Always. Always. So, now do you see why we have no choice? And here's the deal, guys. I want to be clear about this. The reason why I say acknowledge we're in a democratic civil war and fight for your side so we win the civil war, the reason I say that is, there is actual unity among the voters, among the, among the people. In other words, you look at the opinion polls, it's not even close. People who support Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, a Green New Deal, legalizing marijuana, releasing nonviolent drug offenders, taxing Wall Street, the list goes on and on. 
people who support those things, it's the overwhelming majority of the actual voters. Hell, in one poll, even 51% of Republicans support Medicare for all. So being that the people are already on our side on policy, there's already unity. The only place where there's not unity is among the establishment. And they're just getting in the way of the will of the voters. So when you go after Hillary Clinton, when you go after the corporatists, you're not even going after her former voters. Because a lot of her voters, even if you poll them, they'll be like, yeah, I think everybody should have health care as a right. So where's the debate? There is no debate. There is no debate here. The only debate is going on. It's corporate elites trying to gaslight the rest of us and act like their position is popular. It's not. They're a paper tiger. The Democratic establishment is just as much of a paper tiger as the Republican establishment is, and Trump took down that Republican establishment like that and then built it back up because when he was president, and he is president, it's, he's doing everything they want, but they didn't want him to get elected in the first place. They would have rather had like Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. So, but stop and think about that, man. The reason I say acknowledge we're in a civil war and win it is because nobody's, nobody's actually on the side of Hillary Clinton. A very small, loud group of people, like 10% of Democrats on Twitter, loud and aggressively pro-Hillary. So since there's no actual fight going on among the people, and you need to recognize that you're on the side of the people, then these, they're just freaking, they're just like roadblocks in the way to getting positive change in this country. There's no need to apologize. There's no need to semi-apologize. There's no need to backtrack. There's no need to semi-backtrack. Yes, you can boo the person who's at 36% in the polls, 36% favorability rating, and is blocking every single positive change that we have in this country, right along with Donald Trump. So that's why I say acknowledge the civil war and fight it. Because, you know, in this analogy that we have here, it's basically like 90% of the country versus 10% of the country. Our side of the civil war has 90% of the country because it has almost all the voters. They're just a, a, a paper tiger, establishment neoliberal corporatists. Nobody agrees with them. If you, make, if you make them sit down and explain all of their policy beliefs and write it out, and then, and then just hand it to people and only have the policy beliefs written down, don't say who came up with them or anything like that, and ask people, hey, do you support these ideas? Almost nobody would support them. Nobody. So you're afraid to take on those people? You think it might hurt you or it might make you feel bad? Or it might, you know, diminish your popularity? No, if anything, it makes you more popular to go after these people. So you didn't need to apologize. Now, granted, the media was going to nonstop, oh, my God, she's the worst, she's terrible, she doesn't believe in unity, she's evil. They disregard, but see, that's the thing is the people could see through it. The people know. No, it's actually Hillary who started all this. She drew first blood. And so that's super important when discussing this, when having this conversation. So people know. The people know. And even though the media would turn on you, you know, listen, it's one of those things where, it feels terrible in the moment, but in the long run, you'll go, oh, if anything, that helped me. It's like the Joe Rogan thing. The Joe Rogan semi-endorsement of Bernie, and then the media went shitting on him. And, and if anything, in the long run, that helped Joe Rogan. Because everybody who was on the fence about Joe Rogan ended up defending Joe Rogan because they were like, come on, that description from the mainstream media is not fair at all. That's not fair at all. This is a similar thing here. Even though... Rashida Tlaib was getting backlash from the media because she booed Hillary Clinton. Everybody was watching the media saying this stuff and going, I think Rashida was kind of right. 
So there was no need to semi-apologize, and I hope that this lesson is learned and that moving forward we adjust and we don't pull our punches. I'm not saying you gratuitously go on the offense for no reason. No. But if there's one thing I believe in to my core, it's counterpunching. And she came after you first, so don't feel bad at all. I would have released a statement that said something along the lines of, last week she divided the party and she had some disunifying comments that said nobody likes Bernie Sanders. So forgive me for responding to her nonsense, something along those lines. And people would have went, oh, yeah, I guess she did start it, didn't she? So, oh, you don't want me to boo you? Well, maybe you stop shitting on my candidate. How you like them apples? Okay. All right. Iowa caucus day, bitch. Motherfucker, bitch. Today is a big, 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 big day. It's as big of a day as they come. Um, It's Iowa Caucus Day. It's happening right now as I'm doing this show for you guys. Um, I want to go ahead and show you some of the closing argument ads from Bernie Sanders that dropped within the past few days. So these are incredible. I know one of them is an official campaign ad from him and his team. Um, And then there's another one here with Killer Mike. I don't know if this is an official campaign ad or if this is a fan-made ad. But what's been amazing this entire election season so far is that I've seen, I'm not kidding, guys, at least seven or eight examples of fan-made ads that are just as good as the, like, pro-Bernie team ads that are official. So, you know... I got to give a lot of credit to everybody out there. I mean, you want to talk about a real movement here? How many fan-made Amy Klobuchar ads are there? Even the people who are making her ads for her team are probably like, I'd rather be doing something something else. <laughs> Whereas Bernie's team, you got people who are just very talented and creative. And they're like, I want to make this ad. I want to do this because I like the movement so much and I love what he's doing so much. I want to be part of this positive change. So anyway, without further ado, here's two separate um, closing argument Bernie ads leading into the Iowa caucus. You can tell how good I feel by how nervous the establishment is getting. Suddenly, Donald Trump is talking about our campaign. Suddenly, we have the Democratic establishment very nervous about this campaign. We got Wall Street nervous. We got the insurance company nervous. We got the drug company nervous. We got the fossil fuel industry nervous. We are their worst nightmare. There's no question about it. And Bernie Sanders has a lot of money. No doubt. Don't forget Bernie Sanders will set the red flag in front of me. 
And they're starting to think, could this really happen? Something's going on here because Bernie is rising. The CNN poll, he leads Biden, well, he leads Biden by three points among non-white voters. Even if it's a Republican, sometimes you'll hear, well, you know, I still really like Bernie Sanders. And he's not a fairly diverse coalition. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie right now. We got billionaires going on television crying that they're going to have to stop paying their fair share of taxes. They can be a hardcore Trump supporter. I like Bernie Sanders. He's honest. He's the most popular senator in the entire country. Sanders now in the lead. Could there really be a political movement in America which brings together blacks and whites and Latinos and Asian Americans and Native Americans, gay and straight, to stand up as working class people fighting for change? One of my favorite writers growing up was a man named James Baldwin. And I remember Baldwin saying, you ask my father to wait, my brother to wait, my uncle to wait, how long must I wait on freedom? How long must I wait on rights and equality and liberty? And as a black child, that resonated with me because I knew I had been denied and I personalized that. But as I grew, I started to understand poor white people have been denied, women have been denied, gays and lesbians, transgender people been denied, immigrant children been denied. Everybody outside of that 1% has been denied. So I want you to take a few seconds to look to your left and look to your right. Look to your neighbor and say, neighbor, the time is now. There are more of us. We're stronger. We will wait no longer. The time is now. When you go to that booth next year, I need you to carry in that booth the memory of this room. Black, white, straight, gay, men, female. We are together. We are united. Our time is right now. We will not wait four more years. We will not wait 20 more years. We will not wait two more presidents. We will not wait three more presidents. The time is now. The time is not in the future. The time is not some abstract time. The time is not something that might be. The time ain't something that could be. The time ain't nothing that should be. That would be. It ain't tomorrow. It ain't the day after. It ain't coming this week. The time is. The time is. The time is. The time is. Senator Bernard Sanders will be the next president of the United States of America. Thank you. I'm not tearing up. You're tearing up. <laughs> oh, fuck, man. Wow. Goddamn. I don't have tissues, so I'm going to... This is like the glasses cleaner thing. That's going to have to do for now. <laughs> Holy shit, man. I was tweeting about this yesterday. Nina Turner and Killer Mike are two speakers where when they're given a rousing speech, 
they're so good that they could end it with like, and that's why Kyle has to jump off that building right there. And I'd be watching like, damn, they're right though. I got to jump off that building. <laughs> that's how powerful they are. Um, that was amazing. Both of those ads were amazing. So in the first ad that you saw there, which I believe is the official Bernie Sanders team ad, um, the best part was billionaires crying. <laughs> he said, we got billionaires crying, and then you literally see them on TV, like, tearing up. Um, and what I love so much about that first ad is they go back and forth between even Trump supporters say Bernie's honest, and immediately after that they talk about how we have – the most diverse coalition of working-class people. So you see what they're doing there? That's an appeal to everybody. Bringing back the rainbow coalition, like the old terminology that Jesse Jackson used to use, a massively diverse coalition of working-class people, and also saying, hey, man, I'm not saying anything, but if you're a, you know, a Trump supporter who's fed up, is there room for you to sign up to this movement that's fighting for all working people? I think we can make a little room. So it's a real pitch to all Americans who actually want to fix problems and fix the system. Um, and then in the second ad there, geez, the Killer Mike thing was just so amazing. He, um, There's a moment in there which, again, has the same undertone where he says, um, you know, I realize that I'm not the only one who's getting screwed. And then he goes down a whole list of people who've been screwed. And, you know, he includes uh, transgender folks, gay folks. But again, he says even like poor working class white people. And this is that pitch, man. Like the idea of a diverse coalition of working class people standing in solidarity to fix our problems. And that, by the way, that includes all problems. So, you know, a diverse working class coalition is going to fight to end the drug war. And the drug war disproportionately targets minorities, minority communities. So, you know, if black people, white people, Asian people, Native Americans, if everybody stands together, a working class coalition... We can fix all of our problems, including the problems that disproportionately target people of color. And so this is, this is what they're alluding to. It, it's, it's a vision that is very clearly anti-sectarian. It's all-inclusive, and it helps everybody, but it's very clearly anti-sectarian, and as anti-sectarian as humanly possible, because, again, they're alluding to, hey, if you're a, a former Trump voter who's fed up, we still got room for you, bro. We're not writing you off as an irredeemable deplorable, which is exactly what Hillary Clinton did in the last election. So this is, I mean, this is powerful stuff, man. This is an argument that breaks through to anybody. And that's, I mean, that's probably why I was tearing up. The first ad didn't make me tear up that much. I mean, I loved it. But then as soon as Killer Mike started talking, oh, and the crescendo it built to, Wow. Now, uh, you know, I was happening right now as I'm recording this segment. Obviously, I don't know the results yet because it's happening right now. Um, but you might be watching this at a time when we know. Listen, all I could say is the Bernie team has done absolutely everything that they could have done. Everything. 
I'm not kidding, man. They poured their heart and soul into it. And, um, you know, I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to make a prediction. But what I will say is this. Everything on paper, on paper, is looking tremendous. Now, the election happens in the real world. It's not just in theory. It's not just on paper. It happens in the real world. So will that bear out in the results? That's yet to be seen as I'm talking to you guys right now, and I don't have a crystal ball to look into the future. But again, what I will tell you is, leading into this election, New Hampshire, Bernie literally doubles the closest person to him, who is Joe Biden. He literally doubles Joe Biden. So New Hampshire is looking really, really good for Bernie. And as I say that, I literally have to use the eyeglasses thing for my nose. I know, very classy and not gross at all. Um, but New Hampshire, he's just forget it. He's so far ahead of everybody. He's Tiger Woodsing everybody and Michael Jordaning everybody in New Hampshire at this moment. In Iowa, he's not Tiger Woodsing or Michael Jordaning, but a poll was just released at him seven points up. I'm not sure what the average is, but I think it's around four points up maybe. Bernie is. Some polls have him in a dead tie. But again, on paper, we're in a good place. And when you see ads like this, it's hard to imagine anybody overtaking this kind of stuff, man. This is as powerful as I've ever seen. This, honestly, this even puts, like, the Obama ads to shame in 2008, and that was a historic election victory with Obama. So, again, I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to make a prediction. I don't want to say any of that stuff. But, again, I will say, if you look at this election on paper right now, the first few contests, which are monumentally important, on paper, it looks very solid for Bernie. And ads like that certainly are not hurting. Okay. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, I got more Bernie Sanders stuff. Um, I got more Bernie Sanders stuff. And I got um, the John Kerry. I'm not going to want to miss that one. So stay right there, guys. We're really just getting started today. I got a bunch more for you.
All right, I'm back, baby. I am back. Yeah, bitch. So, um, <clears throat> you know, the good mood that I have at this moment will either be amplified or uh, destroyed by tonight. I will be doing, whatever the results are, I will be doing a breaking uh, video later tonight because uh, I think it's pretty important. It's pretty important. I'll do a breaking video and I'll upload it tonight. Um, so, so, so much is riding on this, man. So much is riding on this. Holy shit. It's just, it is definitely, people say this every election season, but I'm going to say it now. This is definitely the most important election of our lifetimes, for sure. For sure. We don't know the next time that we're going to get the real thing. We really don't. We don't know the next time that we're going to have real change on the ballot. Real social democracy on the ballot. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Bernie Sanders is... Um, He's going into playoff mode, and what I mean by that is he's stepping his game up as the primary season officially begins. So Forbes reported the following, Bernie Sanders pledges legal marijuana in all 50 states on day one as president, which is two days to go before the Iowa caucus. This was from two days ago, obviously, um, maybe three as you're watching it now, um, Senator Bernie Sanders is pledging to immediately legalize marijuana in all 50 states if he is elected to the White House. We will end the destructive war on drugs, the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate said at a rally in Cedar Rapids. On my first day in office through executive order, we will legalize marijuana in every state in this country. Wow. <laughs> day one, son. Day one, son. Oh, I love that. That is music to my ears. Don't mess around and win on us, Bernie. Please don't mess around and win on us. <laughs> that is bold, and I love that. Um, and it really shows you... It really shows you that... Um, he's changing the game politically. Because it wasn't that long ago that it was considered taboo to even say, I support legal marijuana. Now he's saying, I will legalize it through executive order on day one. Which, by the way, he has the authority to do. Any president could take it off the you know, uh, banned substances list. And right now it's a Schedule One drug. You can just remove it from the list and you're good. That's it. Over. Done. And what's happening is, as we just saw, and I'll cover this story later, but... Donald Trump ran a, a football, a, a, an ad during the Super Bowl, um, and you'd be surprised what he chose. He chose an ad about Alice Johnson. Alice Johnson is the woman who was in prison for life on a nonviolent drug offense, and Kim Kardashian brought Alice Johnson to Trump's attention. And um, Trump gave her, I don't know if it was a full pardon or a commutation or whatever, but she's out now. And so they cut an ad of her, like, basically leaving prison and being so excited about it. And, um, man, listen, 
it was a good ad, bro. I mean, it was a good ad. We're talking about this, like, old, lovely, grandma-like figure, sweet as can possibly be, who was in prison for life on a nonviolent drug offense. It was such a travesty of justice. It was just absurd. And Trump freed her. And so what did I warn you guys recently? I said, we're going to, if Trump is at all clever about getting elected, and he was in 2016, like him or hate him, if there's one thing he knows how to do, it's sense the mood of a room and adjust to say the thing that they want to hear. And I said, if he's at all clever in 2020, he'll try to pivot to the left of the Democrats on many issues. So that's what this Alice Johnson ad is. It's going into election season, and it's like, Oh, let me tell you about the left things I did. If he's smart, he'll brag in an ad about killing TPP and renegotiating NAFTA. Now, his new NAFTA is very similar to the old NAFTA, so it's really nothing to brag about. But if he were to cherry-pick little pieces of the legislation and brag about it in an ad, then it could be a good ad. It could be a powerful ad. So he's going to pivot to the left of the Democrats on many issues because left ideas sell. So the Alice Johnson ad was something else. But guess what, y'all? I got some news for you. You know who he can't pivot to the left of? Bernie Sanders. When Bernie says, I'm going to legalize marijuana on day one, how you like them apples? What's Trump going to say? What's he going to say? Is he going to say, I'll legalize it now. Great, do it. Do it via executive order right now, today. Do it. Oh, you're not going to do it. Oh, you didn't do it. Well, then how about you hop on a bus to shut the fuck upsville? Because Bernie Sanders is definitely to your left, and Bernie Sanders is definitely more populist than you are, and uh, you ain't going to outflank him on the left. So what happens in that situation? Then Trump is in a corner, and he ends up going with the standard arguments used against Bernie, and he already used some of those recently. He said to Sean Hannity, called Bernie a communist or something, and it's like, wow, <laughs> he hasn't been called that 412 times, and yet he's still the most popular senator in the country. That one's going to work. Don, please, continue. Move right along, son. So, yeah, it's, if he starts listening to the conventional wisdom on Bernie, then it's a wrap, and Bernie's going to win easy in a general election versus Trump. Easy. But stuff like this, man, this is, this is, this is what I like to see. A day one pledge to legalize marijuana. What? In our lifetime, did you ever think you'd see a presidential candidate who said that and meant it? I believe him. I think he'll do it. Now I just want to see also, because remember, the president is the commander-in-chief. The president has the most direct control over the military, too. And I asked Bernie this when um, when I interviewed him. I said, you know, would you pledge to end the Afghanistan war immediately and Iraq war immediately? And he basically said, like, within the first 100 days. If he really wanted to be badass, he could, he could add, I'll end the Iraq and Afghanistan wars on the first day, too. If he adds that, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that'd be so gangster, man. Holy crap. Oh, that'd be so good. Wow. <laughs> this is great stuff. I love this. Legalize marijuana in all 50 states on day one as president. I'll see if I could try my best to, you know, use my back channel to be like, Tell him to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, too, on day one. He'll win, like, in a super gigantic landslide, over 350 electoral votes. I mean, if he keeps going in this direction, that might be the case if he gets to the general election. So we'll have to wait and see, but 
bold, and I love it. If you need further evidence that the Democratic establishment is panicking, look no more. NBC says John Kerry overheard discussing possible 2020 bid amid concern of Sanders taking down the Democratic Party. That he even discussed the possibility suggests that prominent members of the Democratic Party remain deeply unsettled by the current field. Former Secretary of State John Kerry, one of Joe Biden's highest profile endorsers, was overheard Sunday on the phone at, Des Moines, at, the, at a Des Moines hotel explaining what he would have to do to enter the presidential race and the possibility of Bernie Sanders taking down the Democratic Party down whole. Sitting in the lobby restaurant of the Renaissance Savory Hotel, Kerry was overheard by an NBC News analyst saying, maybe I'm fucking deluding myself here and explaining that in order to run, he'd have to step down from the board of Bank of America (laughs) and give up his ability to make paid speeches. Kerry said donors like venture capitalist Doug Hickey would have to raise a couple of million, adding that such donors now have the reality of Bernie. Asked about the call later on Sunday, Kerry said that he was absolutely not contemplating joining the Democratic primary race. He reiterated this sentiment in a tweet later, saying that any report otherwise is fucking or categorically false. Minutes later, he deleted. Wowzers. So, um, he's really like, no, 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 no. But here's the thing. Nobody's saying that you made this comment. Like, you went to the media and said, I am now considering running in the primary, and uh, I'm thinking about what I would need in order to hop in and, and do it. They're saying that basically the story is there's an NBC reporter, NBC employee in Des Moines because of the Iowa caucus, and he overheard John Kerry talking on the phone to somebody else saying these things. Now, so do I think that this happened? Yes, I do. Is it possible it's slightly exaggerated? Sure, of course. But, um, I mean, the specifics somebody's making it up, I mean, the degree of specificity is really something else. Um, Let me tell you what this means, guys. This means John Kerry and the rest of the Democratic establishment, they see the writing on the wall. They're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, Biden is so weak right now. John Kerry is there to be a surrogate for Biden. And behind his back, he's like, dog. We in trouble. Wow. It's also hilarious, too, because let's assume that he was saying everything he said here on the phone to somebody. Like, dude, you ran in 2004 and lost to George W. Bush after the country had four years of George W. Bush. Do you understand how weak that is? Do you understand how sad that is? Because what he ran on is, who, who, me, bro? Listen, the Iraq war is great. I'll be a better manager of the Iraq war, though. Wow, what a bold and inspiring message. I'm like the other guy, except like, you know, a little bit more managerial and smarter. 
it's funny. When you don't run on like a bold and opposite vision, you lose. So he lost. So, the, you know, the last thing I want to hear is talks about <laughs> getting elected from one of the biggest electoral failures of my lifetime. I mean, seriously, losing to George W. Bush after four years of George W. Bush when George W. Bush lost the popular vote in the first election. I mean, come on, man. How sad are you? So um, the other thing is, guys, look, look at their perception of Bernie. Their perception of Bernie is like he's going to take down the whole Democratic Party. Actually, in a weird way, he would save the Democratic Party because, John, nobody likes you. Nobody likes you. Nobody likes Tom Perez. Nobody likes Hillary Clinton, 36% favorability rating, and she's the face of the Democratic Party and refuses to let go of power and keeps reemerging every other week to shit on the leaders. So, yet again, their perception is exactly backwards. Their perception is, oh my God, Bernie Sanders, he's going to take us down, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. What he really means is, oh, Bernie's going to take down the moneyed interests in the Democratic Party. He's going to get rid of the centrist neoliberal corporatists. And on that, he's right. Ain't going to be no hanger-on lobbyists, son. Ain't going to be no Wall Street people, military-industrial complex people, big pharma people, for-profit health insurance company people. They are outskies. They are gonzo. You know, it, wouldn't it be wonderful? Nina Turner, head of the DNC. What? What? Come on, man. And that's what we're looking at here. So they see the writing on the wall with Bernie, and they're panicking on how to stop him. This is actually low-key a really positive story, because they are freaked. They are freaked out. And they're like, what are we going to do? And uh, it's so funny that in, in this story, they literally say, like, okay, I'd have to stop giving my paid speeches. I'd have to step down from the board of Bank of America. <laughs> I'd have to take venture capitalist money. Sure, I'm sure that in this very uh, populist anti-corruption era that we have right now, anti-establishment era, that, you know, people hearing that, they're really going to want to support you. They're really going to want to support you. Hey, guys, I, sure, I hopped in at the last second. I took venture capitalist money, but I stepped down from the Board of America, so Bank of America, so support me. Oh. You were right. If he actually said, maybe I'm fucking deluding myself, if he actually said that, that part, I have a message for you, John Kerry. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> you are deluding yourself. See, they feel like the party insiders, they really feel a sense of entitlement. Like, what do you mean? We're the party insiders. We're the elites. We get to pick stuff. Mm, pretty sure the voters are supposed to pick in a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. Okay, next. The neoconservative Bush administration lackey, Bill Kristol, had a surprising announcement on Twitter. He said the following, Not presumably forever, not perhaps for a day after November 3rd, 2020, not on every issue or in every way until then, but for the time being, one has to say, we are all Democrats now. Congratulations, establishment Democrats. 
you've attracted the kind of people that you were looking to attract with your vacuous, vapid resistance, which does, doesn't ever focus on substantive issues. So um, I saw a couple articles about this, and it got me thinking. You know, who exactly do we welcome in our coalition? And I'm on the record as stating repeatedly that I want more people, not fewer people. So, you know, we should welcome almost everybody with open arms. I've said before, if you're a former two-times Obama voter who flipped to Trump, there's plenty resistance types, centrist neoliberals who would say, I don't want you. You voted for Trump. But, you know, listen, we need to win those people back in order to win the election. Former two-times Obama voters who flipped to Trump, my guess is they're not really voting for Trump because of the bigotry. They were voting for him because he promised to keep the jobs here. Um, but I will say this, in the case of Bill Crystal, mm, you can piss right off. <laughs> now, here's what I mean by that. There are some exceptions to building our broad coalition. And... Um, I have a hard no clause on war criminals, <laughs> and he is that. He's a war criminal. I don't want him with us. Are you kidding me? So, listen, I want as big of a tent as humanly possible within reason. So, but if you're somebody who's terminally corrupt, for example, not really interested, because you're bringing your corruption into the big tent and watering down one of the main things that we're about, which is fighting corruption. So if you're terminally corrupt, not really interested. If you're a war criminal, not really interested. Um, you know, but if you're somebody who is willing to sign up to an agenda of Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the war, so on and so forth, well, then sure. But see, the thing is, and he's hedging on purpose in that tweet, and here's why. You know damn well that if it's Bernie Sanders, he will immediately be like, no, never mind. Exactly. Exactly. So what he means is, he wants to reshape the Democratic Party in his image. What is his image? His image is a tried and true war criminal, war hawk, who's never met a war he didn't like. He's a deep neoconservative. He thinks the United States' rightful place is world police, where we get to invade any country we want, bully them around, steal their natural resources, where in our rightful place is the world's sole superpower. This is what he believes. And he wants the Democratic Party to fully reflect his ideology. So basically, if resistance people welcome with open arms, that's a deal with the devil. Now, on the flip side, when a two-times Obama voter who went to Trump comes back to, say, Bernie, they're signing up for what he wants. He's not signing up to what they want. They look and they go, well, you know, he did fight against the outsourcing deals. I'll vote for Bernie. And Bernie says, what? Listen, you sign up for me. You're signing up for Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars, Green New Deal, jobs program, so on and so forth. And they're like, all right, I'm down with all that. So it, it's a matter of who's signing up to whose values. And there's no doubt that Bill Kristol, being an elitist, being you know, a neoconservative who was in the Bush administration, he... There are strings attached when he jumps in and when he says, oh, I'm a Democrat now. That's him saying, I want to influence them to be as hawkish as humanly possible and support as many wars as possible. So even though I'm, I'm on record as being, you know, I am as committed to anybody to the deconversion project. And I would hold up my record on deconversions against almost anybody in the country. Um, 
So, you know, I got nothing but love for you. If you're somebody who used to vehemently disagree, if you're somebody who, you know, had a vile ideology in the past and then we've sufficiently convinced you that social democracy is beautiful and wonderful and we should go in that direction, that's great. But there are a few areas where you draw the line, and one of them is proven war criminals who are still in favor of intervention in every single country conceivable. He still has a list of countries he wants to topple. So war criminals, neocons, the terminally corrupt. Man, we got a big tent over here, but you ain't welcome, dog. Hate to tell you. Okay. I want to take a second to reflect on the state of the money primary here, but I'm talking about a very specific angle of the money primary, uh, namely self-funding. So put aside you know, the entire conversation about individual contributions or PACs or whatever. This is about self-funding. So look at the numbers as they stand right now. Tom Steyer raised or spent about $202 million, $202.5 million of his own money trying to get elected. Michael Bloomberg, who got in the race about seven and a half minutes ago, has spent over $200,000, $200,000, that's so hilarious, that's like nothing to him, I mean, he could literally just throw that out the window and not think twice about it, $200 million of his own money, and then it's a giant fall off a cliff after that, although John Delaney, $25 million. (laughs) 25 million, and I think he actually had 0% going into Iowa, which is hilarious. By the way, he just dropped out. Michael Bennett is still running, but John Delaney dropped out. We'll talk about the John uh, Delaney thing a little bit later. Um, And then you have Andrew Yang put $46,000 of his own into his um, race. John Hickenlooper, uh, $32,000. Elizabeth Warren, 5,700. Michael Bennett, 2,800. Tulsi Gabbard put 75 bucks towards her. Bernie Sanders put zero dollars towards himself. So, um, I mean, here's the main point and why we're talking about this. What Steyer's doing and Bloomberg's doing, and even Delaney and, and Yang and Hickenlooper, but more specifically, Steyer and Bloomberg, Steyer, Steyer and Bloomberg, 100% should not be allowed. And it is a scandal that this isn't talked about more. Because this is like deep, deep oligarchy stuff. That's what this is. So Michael Bloomberg, you know, Bloomberg has honestly just happened to spend his money in a more efficient way than Steyer, Steyer did. And I bet Steyer, Steyer is thinking right now, like, man, I wish I had done what Bloomberg did because Bloomberg's approach is kind of working. Bloomberg decided I'm basically going to spend all of my money carpet bombing the airwaves everywhere, everywhere um, with ads. And so like here, here in New York, for example, usually, you know, we don't get much attention paid to us in any election season because we're like a solidly blue state. And for whatever reason, even for the primary season, there's not much you know, 
There's not much energy uh, towards us. So, um, but I have seen hundreds of Michael Bloomberg ads just watching TV. Hundreds. I'll be watching a Knicks game, and you'll get two Bloomberg ads in one commercial break, one at the beginning and one at the end. And I haven't seen any other ads at all, ever. Um, and now, repeat what he's doing in New York in every state in the country. Now, I'm sure he's, he's focusing on certain ones more than other ones, but he has bought himself 6 to 8% in the national polls, which is out of this world. Because when you look at Bernie and Biden, you know, they have between 25% and 30% respectively. So, I mean, the fact that he, he's bought like a third of the support they got, and think of how hard Bernie had to work in campaign and focus on the grassroots, how hard he had to do, how hard he had to work and what he had to do to get to that point. It's, it's mind-boggling that dude can just hop in carpet bomb the airways with $200 million, which is not much to him, and buy himself legitimacy in the race. Not only that, we just spoke earlier about how he donated over a million dollars to the DNC in a variety of ways, $300,000 to the National DNC, $800,000 to the Democratic Grassroots Victory Fund, which is the DNC plus the state parties. Bloomberg donated uh, there, and then they changed the debate rules. So they say, oh, Oh, do we have an individual donor threshold with over 200,000 individual donors that you need to get on stage? Whoops, what happened to that? We got rid of it. So they're just changing the rules for him to get him on the debate stage to try to take down Bernie. So this is a, a, a scandal. This is a scandal what's happening here. Now, Steyer has been largely inefficient with how he spent his money, so he's not really getting a return on investment. But Bloomberg, his approach has worked. To go from nothing to 8% just by shitting out hundreds of millions of dollars and buying ads, that should not be allowed, man. Not at all. So, first of all, we need to get money out of politics. And the way to do that where it actually sticks is with a constitutional amendment. But short of that, guys, every single election should be run with small-dollar donations. No corporate PAC money. No billionaire money. Shit. No union PAC money. No PAC money. Everything should be small-dollar donations, everything, because that's the real – if we had – imagine we had an election system where in order to run, that's the only way you could raise money is small-dollar donations. Guys, it, corporatists would have no chance because Bloomberg would have to try to go out there and actually get grassroots, get the people to believe in him, to then donate to him, and he'd be stuck at 0%, you know, along with Delaney. So it – it's, a, it's really sad to think about that if we had a system that made sense and if we had a system that prioritized the grassroots and prioritized democracy, that Bloomberg would be nowheresville. But now, because of the corrupt system that we have, we could just make it rain money across the entire country. Now he's in the conversation as one of the fringe viable candidates when he's skipping the first four contests, which I think is disrespectful to the people in those states. So, um, ugh. it's gross, man. It's gross. It's gross what he's doing. And then the final point is, stop for a second and think. Imagine the $200 million Steyer Steyer put in his race and the $200 million Michael Bloomberg put in his race. And these numbers are going up, by the way. They're going up, especially for Bloomberg because he ain't going anywhere. 
That's $400 million total. Imagine what we could have done with $400 million. Imagine how many homeless people you, you could have taken off the streets and put a roof over their head. Imagine how many people you could have given health care to or how many student loans you could have helped pay off. I mean, that could, that could have went to so many amazing things. But we have this gross campaign finance system. And so, you know, I tweeted this the other day, but if you're a working person, you might fuck around and buy a new pair of pants. If you're a millionaire, you might fuck around and buy a new car. If you're a billionaire, you might fuck around and buy politicians and a political party. An attempt to buy an election. And that's definitely what's happening here. Okay. All right, let's go to Trump's Super Bowl interview. President Trump, in his pre-Super Bowl interview with Sean Hannity, played the word association game with the Democratic candidates. Let's watch. I got to tell you guys, even just watching that little clip, my takeaway is crystal clear. He, he would handle, he would handle anybody except Bernie. I believe that. I mean, I think he's a, a strong favorite against everybody but Bernie. But let's go through that from the top. He's asked what he thinks about Biden. And he says, sleepy. He's sleepy. Look at him. He's sleepy. I mean, listen, this is, 
is he wrong? Is he wrong? I mean, I think I think that's even like a mild way of putting it. It's almost like a nice way of saying the thing that people have been saying in private conversations all this time, which is he's losing it. So, you know, now Trump is obviously not the poster child of mental health, but is he sharper cognitively than Biden right now? Definitely. I think so. Um, the Hunter thing, and he's, where's Hunter? Where's Hunter? This is a thing that they've been doing for a while on the right, because, you know, Biden's, Biden, Joe Biden's, like, hiding him because, you know, he's like the poster child of corruption now, Hunter Biden. And Trump goes on to explain that. He says, listen, millions of dollars, uh, he took millions of dollars from Ukraine, natural gas company, and it's super corrupt and it's crooked. He is going to, and that's the thing, is like, for Bernie, remember when Bernie, um, one of Bernie's surrogates called Biden corrupt and wrote a great detailed article on it, and then Bernie, like, apologized to Biden. I was like, oh, my God, no, don't do that. First of all, it's true. But second of all, Trump is going to absolutely clobber Biden with that, and Biden's response is going to be incoherent. And Trump is going to walk away the victor in that conversation in the same way that Trump hit Hillary Clinton on the Clinton Foundation and her corruption Trump is going to hit Biden on the corruption, too, and he won't have a good response. So Biden also needs to be battle-tested, and they backed away from an accurate criticism of him. You think Trump is going to walk on eggshells around that? No, he's going to clobber you with it. And you're going to have no response. You're going to say, you know, uh, well, I think that what we need to do is make sure that you keep the record player on at night and make sure the kids hear words and make sure that you have people who are... uh, doing well in their industry, in their field, and and you'll know what to do. My time's up. That's what we're going to see. Oh, my God, so bad. Um, So the thing on Biden and the thing on Hunter, it hurts because it's true. Um, Then let me go to Warren next. For Warren, he said, I call her fairy tale. And then he said, of course, Pocahontas, because that's what he does. Um, He's not going to. He is going to, Trump is going to make sure he has a list of five or six of the big lies she's told, and he's going to hit her on those things. And he will be relentless, and I don't think she'll know how to respond. I don't think she'll know how to respond. And just like with the DNA thing, if anything, she could be baited into making herself look worse. Trump does petty like only Trump can do petty. If you try to hop into the petty pool with him, He's going to beat you at his own game. And I don't think she, she has any idea what would hit her. I think that if she knew how to just be her professorial wonky self, then there'd be a chance, her versus Trump. But I don't think she knows how to just be her professorial wonky self because she hasn't been that. She's been doing what her advisors want. Her advisors are terrible, and she's a mess. Um, and then <laughs> Bloomberg, he says, um, what do you think of when you think of Bloomberg? He says, little. He's little. <laughs> Okay, that's like high school bully stuff, so it's kind of stupid. But also, uh, I can't get enough of the – he keeps saying that Bloomberg asked for a box at the Democratic debates. Guys, that's definitely not true. Bloomberg didn't ask for a box. And this is something that's blown up on the right. But I just find it hilarious because he's so good at taking something that's, like, not accurate and then just pumping it out there. And he's doing it here. He just keeps repeating it. He keeps repeating it. He says he wants a box. He wants a box at the debates because he's little. You believe this guy? He wants a box. I can't believe he wants a box. He wants a box. Should everybody else get a box? I mean, that's only fair if everybody else gets a box. But little Mike Bloomberg wanted a box. 
for the debates. I don't think that's fair. <laughs> Come on, man. He's gonna, he would run circles around the overwhelming majority of these candidates. I'm sorry he would. They're not used to, like, they're all so overcoached, and they're not, they're not ready for the big leagues. The only one that's ready for the big leagues is Bernie, and that brings me to what he said about Bernie. So he says, um, what do you think of when you think of Bernie? He says, uh, communism. I think of communism. You know, some would say socialism, but I think much beyond socialism. And, I mean, he went on his honeymoon. He went to Moscow. He went to Moscow on his honeymoon. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, that's a wonderful thing, but you don't think of marriage. You go to Moscow, you don't think that. And then at the end he says, but he is true to what he believes in. Don't even take my word for it. Take somebody else on the right. Take their word for it. Sagar and Jetty from uh, The Hill TV's Rising has said this repeatedly. He screamed it from the mountaintops. He said, if you're a Republican and you want to run against Bernie and you think, the communism, socialism, Venezuela, you think that's going to work? You got another thing coming. You got another thing coming. The standard go-to lines of attack against Bernie from the right, where has that gotten the right against Bernie? Answer, Bernie is the most popular senator in the country by far. People have been screaming at him from day one. He's a socialist, he's a communist, he likes Maduro, he loves Venezuela, all that. They've been saying it all along his entire career, and Bernie Sanders is literally the most popular senator in the country. According to every poll, going back, they've been doing this poll for like 11 years. Every year, Bernie Sanders is the most popular senator in the country. Your line of attack sucks. Sucks. It hasn't worked, and it's not going to work. You want to know why? Because your scare words come to nothing when he explains exactly what he's in favor of. Hey, you know what? You call me whatever you want to call me. Here's what I'm in favor of. Medicare for all. Free college. Eliminating student loan debt. Living wage. Ending the wars. A jobs program. So on and so forth. People will hear that and go, oh, well, I actually support all those things. Even a majority of Republicans support some of those ideas. Living wage and uh, Medicare for all. So once he describes what he's for, what are you going to do? I'll tell you what Trump would do. He'd go right back to the communist. And people would be like, that's weak. So I think everybody except Bernie uh, is really weak against Trump. I do. And I think Bernie, honestly, would manhandle him. What you're about to see here is um, incredible. This is an ER doctor, and he did an amazing job schooling Mike Pence on an important issue, namely Medicare, but I think more specifically Medicaid. Hey, 
That dude schooled Mike Pence way more than any elected Democrat has ever schooled Mike Pence. I was thinking back to the, uh, the vice presidential debate in 2016 as I watched that, and I was like, wow, if only this guy was Hillary's VP. Because <laughs> Tim Kaine came across terrible in those debates, and Mike Pence definitely won those debates. And uh, this dude just calmly obliterated him. And, you know, it occurred to me as I was watching that, one of the reasons why he was doing such a good job is because he actually believes in what he's saying. He really knows and he believes that Medicare or Medicaid is vitally important and you can't cut it because his patients depend on it. So there was no, like, he was never taken aback or shook when um, Pence was, like, trying to BS his way out of it. He was just calmly explaining, like, No, that's not exactly true, because what the Republicans do on these issues is they have all these weasel words, and they dance around it. They don't want to just come out and say, 
we are going to cut Medicaid because that's massively unpopular. So what they do is they, they say like, oh, we're going to reform it. We're going to move to a block grant system. And what that does is it effectively cuts it. Less money would be going to these programs. But what they say is, no, 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 it's just a reform and we're moving to a block grant. So that's how we're going to describe it. But they don't tell you that it is an effective cut. Well, this guy knows it is. So he's calling him out on that. And his weasel words don't work. Because if you catch the Republicans in a more honest moment, they'll just tell you, and libertarians will be upfront with this, and in a way you've got to respect them for it, they'll just be like, no, we don't think the government should have anything to do with health care at all, even in the ways it already is involved in health care with Medicare and Medicaid and the VA. We want to move away from that system completely. We don't think it's a good system. So even though this is a doctor who uses Medicaid, um, we want to take that away from you. That's the honest take. But Pence can't just say that because he'll look like he has as unpopular position as he does. So he tries to dance around it. But this guy doesn't let him get away with it. So I think that was an amazing clip. And I think that uh, if we had Democrats who really believed in these programs as much as that guy believes in Medicaid, we'd be in a hell of a lot better position in this country. And um, it's just a shame that politics is full of such nonsense that uh, they're not really held to the standard that the people set. People do not want these programs cut. And you don't see other Democrats and you don't see the media holding Pence and Trump and all the Republicans accountable when they take these deeply unpopular positions. Okay. Next. It is John Delaney time. It is John Delaney time. John Delaney spoke to CNN uh, to announce his dropping out of the presidential race. Um, I know all of you were distraught. We got a lot of Delaney supporters in the audience here. The thing I love most about this is I get the sense, I don't know why, but I get the sense that like, he had to beg them to let him on air to announce this. <laughs> because the host is like, okay, you bugged us to come on air. What do you have to say? <laughs> so I get that strong sense that it's like he was like, I-, I have to make a big announcement. And people at CNN are like, nothing you have ever said ever is a big announcement. So what? What do you want? What do you want, bro? <laughs> so anyway, here's a jacked John Delaney. He is jacked, by the way. He works out like a fiend, and his body does not match his face at all. But here he is uh, explaining why he's dropping out and saying a bunch of things that are silly. Former Maryland Congressman John Delaney joins me now live from Des Moines. Congressman Delaney, thank you for being with us this morning. What is your news? Good morning, John. Well, I'm announcing this morning that I am withdrawing from the 2020 race. And this campaign has never been about me. It's been about big ideas to move the country forward, ideas that can get done, bringing this country together, and most importantly, beating Donald Trump. And I've campaigned harder than anyone in Iowa. I've been to all 99 counties. I've done hundreds of events across this great state. But it's clear to me on Monday, on caucus night, I will not have sufficient support to get to the 15% viability threshold that, as you know, John, is needed 
to get delegates out of Iowa. But my support is sufficient enough to take from other more moderate candidates. And I just don't want to do that because I think we need a, a candidate who's running in the center, who can bring this country together to solve problems, uh, to accomplish the objectives that we need to do, which is to beat Trump and govern in the future. So that's my news today. Other more moderate candidates, you don't want to take support away from them. So what will you tell your supporters? Who will you suggest that your supporters caucus for then on Monday? Well, I think it's pretty clear to me that my support, which is particularly strong in rural Iowa, where I've spent a lot of time, you know, they're looking for problem solvers. They're looking for someone who's got realistic solutions, pragmatic solutions to the big issues of our time. And so there's several candidates running in Iowa uh, that meet that criteria. Oh. And so I'm not endorsing anyone. I'm not directing any but of which my candidate, supporters but to which go to candidates, any Which candidates candidate. are they, just so there's no ambiguity here? Which candidates fit that bill? Well, there's a few top of mind that obviously meet that criteria. I think Vice President Biden does. I think Senator Klobuchar does. I think Mayor Buttigieg does. You know, I think there, there are several. And, again, I'm not endorsing anyone, but it's clear to me to have the best chance of beating Donald Trump, which is the most important thing for our party at this moment in time, and to actually be able to govern and, and kind of stop the noise and bring this country together and put forth big ideas but pragmatic ideas, we need someone with, with that type of orientation. And I think it's incredibly important. And so for me, you know, I think at this moment in time, this is not the purpose God has for me. And so what I want to do is what's right for my party, what's good for the country, and continue to advocate for the ideas that have been so important to my campaign and in many ways so unique. And to some extent, a lot of things that candidates are talking about now are things that I started talking about very early in this campaign. Come on, dude. Come on. I submit to you guys, does he believe what he's saying there, or is he just trying to puff up his own ego, which is obviously very bruised. He said, you know, his ideas shaped the race. Your ideas shaped Dickie McGee's acts. That's what they shaped. Please. Um, there's a lot there. So, first of all, even to the fact that he says, I, you know, I have big ideas. Really? Name them. What are your big ideas? You don't have big ideas. Um, I love the, the sense of self-aggrandizement when he says, you know, hey, listen, my support will take away from other moderate candidates. Your support wouldn't take away from anybody because your support is non-existent. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I know that's harsh, but who is he kidding? Bro, who are you kidding? I'm pretty sure he was at 0% in the polls. Zero. Now, that's nationally, so maybe in Iowa, I don't know, maybe at 1%. I don't know. But who are you kidding? Like, as if you were any influence on this race whatsoever. And the funny thing is, he hopped into the race before anybody did. I believe he announced he's running for president in 2017. And he's been campaigning this whole time. And he's got nothing to show for it. What does that say? What does that say? Either you're particularly annoying as a person, or your ideology is just not popular. Or both. <laughs> it could very well be both. Um, and then he describes, he keeps describing his set of beliefs as realistic, pragmatic, and problem-solving. 
and he wants to support other realistic, pragmatic problem solvers in the debate, or in the race. And then he lays out, yeah, you know, Biden, Mayor Pete, Amy Klobuchar, who's who of centrist, corporatist, nothings. Um, and, you know, it's funny because as I hear him describe his beliefs with and using the terms realistic, pragmatic, and problem solving, I think that actually is what Bernie is. Like, I know Bernie's critics say, oh, my God, so far left, oh, my God. But actually, no, he's the realistic one, he's the pragmatic one, and he's the problem-solving one, because all Bernie is doing is looking at the rest of the developed world and going, you know, I think we could uh, do some of what they do. That's not radical. That's not extreme. That's not so far left. That's basic social democratic reform. So really, he's the realistic, pragmatic problem solver. Hey, Canada's got a better healthcare system than us. Maybe we should do a system like Canada. I would call that realistic and pragmatic. I would call that problem solving. I mean, this stuff is, come on, he's just adding on to the legacy of FDR. That's it. That's all he's doing. That's realistic. That's pragmatic. That's problem solving. Um, and then finally, he, he goes on to say, you know, the way to beat Trump is with centrism. And it drives me crazy because I know nobody's listening to him, but it's like this idea is pervasive in mainstream media. It's pervasive among the establishment. And I'm sorry, but the data just doesn't pack it up. If anything, it's the opposite. Bernie Sanders is the one who consistently beats Donald Trump in the polls and by the widest margin. Centrism is not the way to go. You know, but to be fair to him, it's not like we've run an experiment in the past where we could know for sure that centrism doesn't work against Trump. Oh, wait, we did do that. Hillary versus Trump in 2016, and Hillary lost. Yes, she won the popular vote, but turns out popular vote doesn't determine the election. Electoral College does. And Bernie wins not only the popular vote, also the Electoral College, because his support is dispersed in the proper way around the country, whereas Hillary's was namely not in the Rust Belt, where she needed to get that support. So, you know, he's wrong on all counts here, and the self-aggrandizing is hilarious. I guess you need to lick your wounds when you're, you know, you've been that thoroughly obliterated. But jacked John Delaney has now officially dropped out. Although, funny enough, surfer bro Mike Bennett is, like, still running, bro. I don't know why he wants to, like, embarrass himself by getting, like, no support, bro. Okay. All right, final story of the day. And then, like I said, um, I will, uh, I'll be doing a live not a live video, but I will do a breaking video later today when we know what happens in the Iowa caucus. I will be doing a breaking video later today. <clears throat> now, the other day on the show, I said that if Trump is smart politically... He'll attempt to run to the left of the Democrats uh, in the general election. Now, he's done this before, and it, it was crystal clear against Hillary. On the Iraq war, he tried to be to her left. On outsourcing and the trade deals, he tried to be to her left. There were a variety of issues where he was like, no, 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 I'm going to outflank you and seem more populist than you are. Now, fundamentally, as president, he hasn't followed through with that populist talk and with the anti-war stuff, he's increased the wars. Um, 
But we're coming back around to election season now. So yesterday was the Super Bowl, and Donald Trump released an ad, had an ad as a commercial during the Super Bowl, and look at what he went with. I'm going to make it plain for everybody right now. That was a good ad. That was a fire ad. Do not underestimate this man in 2020. Do not do it. He's not Mitt Romney, dog. He ain't Mitt Romney. He ain't John McCain. He's not going to be a robot who only does exactly what his terrible advisors tell him to do. No. He has better political instincts and he knows how to read a room more than every Republican advisor that he could have. And he also has that thing where he's, he'll just tell people if he doesn't agree with them, piss off. So he ran an ad during the Super Bowl, which has a left-wing message. The left-wing message, look at this. I freed this beautiful, lovely grandma who was in prison on a nonviolent drug offense for life. Kim Kardashian brought this case to Trump. Trump looked at it and said, yeah, I'll free her. I don't know if he pardoned the sentence or commuted the sentence, but she's free. She's, she's out of prison. I gave Trump credit. Everybody with a functioning brain gave Trump credit when he did this. He's also citing the First Step Act, which is uh, criminal justice reform. Now, that really is just a tiny step in the right direction. But it is a step in the right direction, the First Step Act. So he is bragging about left-wing things. He did like three or four decent things and 112 terrible things in his first term. Turns out he's going to focus on the three or four good things that he did. That's what he's going to do. Do not underestimate this man. And this is why it has to be Bernie versus Trump. If it's Biden... Trump could just outflank him on his left or seemingly outflank him on his left on, like, every issue and run circles around Biden, and Biden's barely coherent. It could, be a, it could be a crushing victory for Trump if it's Biden versus Trump, man. I think he's a big favorite if he's up against Biden. And when he's up against Bernie, let me ask you a question. How's he going to outflank Bernie on his left? Okay, so I just told you this is a wonderful ad, a beautiful ad. It's going to help him. Everybody with a functioning brain has... Sympathy for this woman who was going through hell and Trump did the right thing. The same day that this ad was released, Bernie Sanders did a rally. In the rally, Bernie Sanders said, on day one as president, I'm going to legalize marijuana in all 50 states through an executive order. Who's outflanking who? So not only, so Trump, great, Trump freed a nonviolent drug offender who shouldn't have been there. Wonderful. What about the thousands that are still in there? You going to do something about that? Oh, you didn't do stuff about that. Okay. Well, Bernie will. And Bernie will legalize, tax, and regulate marijuana at a federal level on day one. Take it off the controlled substances list on day one. 
go ahead, try to outflank that. And let's say Trump does. Then we get legal marijuana either way. Wonderful. All I care about is the policy. So that was a good ad from Trump. Don't underestimate him. Only Bernie can really take him on. Don't get it twisted. This was clever. There might be some partisan hacks out there who don't want to give credit where credit is due. But this was a clever ad, man. He's focusing on one of the few great things he did, the thing that's really not debatable, and he's pumping that out there. So the MAGA crowd is going to love it because they love everything he does. But even people who aren't in the MAGA crowd are going to go, well, on this one, that's true. So how do we beat that? We beat that by outflanking it and doing even more positive stuff. Only Bernie can fulfill that role. Okay. All right, we are done with the show today, bitch. Um, like I said, I'll do a breaking video later when we know about the Iowa caucus. All right. Love you guys. I'm sending all the love I possibly can to Bernie Sanders and to all of his supporters and to all of his surrogates in Iowa. Let's get this bad boy done. All right, guys. I love you. Peace.